Well, good morning, Spanish River Church. That was pretty good. I think we're, we're getting better at that each time. My name is Mike Vietz, and I am a pastor on staff here. I've been here almost three months, and I just wanted to say thank you to everyone in the congregation. Uh, you have warmly welcomed my family. I've received text messages, greetings, waves, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and it's just been wonderful. I also wanted to say that I'm more excited today than I was when I started uh, three months ago because I've gotten a chance to meet more of you and your passion for Jesus and to make his name known is evident. And I'm more excited and more hopeful and more um, excited. I just said that, but I'm going to say it again. I'm more excited about the future than I was when I started. So uh, thank you. Thank you. And we're going to be in Luke chapter eight. Go ahead. If you have your Bibles or your phones or your iPad or something like that, turn to Luke chapter eight, verses 22 through 25. And while you do that, I'm just going to give a real quick recap of where we've been. Pastor David has been going through what worship is, and in, in addition to that, maybe what it's not. He's covered worship, the fact that worship is a gift from God. Remember that? God said to the Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. And for all the people who are called in the name of Christ, we find that worship is a gift. And we also find that God makes all of us priests. We're not consumers. We're not here simply to enjoy a message. We're here as priests to lift up an offering to the Lord. That's all of us. I'm no more of a priest than you are. As priests, we find that worship is our highest priority. We want to gather together and worship with one another so we can worship our king. And we learn the characteristics of worship, that it's spiritual, liturgical, hospitable, scriptural, and sacramental. And finally, last week, we learned the importance of music in worship. How music teaches us and trains us and disciples us, helps us to understand who God is and who we are in Christ. And we find that God is the singer in our midst. That Jesus himself sings over us when we gather together to worship. And the question I want to ask today is, what happens when the saints of God gather together and God's in our midst and we hear his song sung over us. There's something that happens to us and the question is, what is that? Here's another way to pose the question. How do we know we've worshiped and not just been entertained? How do we know we've seen the resurrected Christ and not just seen a really good speaker? How do we know we've heard the song of God and not just a great worship band? The answer to that is something happens to us. We experience something. Our heart changes. We find that we grow in our reverence for God. We marvel at his goodness. And we fall in love deeper than we ever had before with our Savior. So that's what we're going to look at. Let's read, let's read Luke chapter 8. We're also going to look at Luke chapter 7. So once we are done reading, no, just close the Bibles and move on. We're going to, in the middle of the sermon, we're going to go back to Luke chapter 7. But we'll start in 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 22 says this. One day when he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So, that, so they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they, will, they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and raging sea waves and they ceased. There was calm. 
He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? That's a great question, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are amongst us. You're here. And Father, we confess that even though we may mentally believe that, our hearts are gripped by so many other things that we absolutely lose sight of that reality. We may be enamored with the music that is sung. We may be consumed by the fact we don't like the preacher. We may have things in the world around us that just demand our attention. Father, would you forgive us? Father, we thank you that you have grace on us in spite of us, and we ask that you would descend in a powerful way today, that we might see you more clearly than we ever have before, and we might be reverent, we might marvel, we might love you greater than we ever have before. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I remember growing up, I, I, like Pastor David, grew up in a Lutheran church. And I may have, I told this story at the men's retreat, so I apologize uh, if you've heard this before, but it's good to listen again, uh, right? So yeah, thank you. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, not really, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this at all. Uh, one of my earliest memories, really my only memory of church growing up was of one gentleman. He was dressed very nice. Great business suit, he had beautiful blue-rimmed glasses, looked superb. He would always arrive slightly late, and he would be there just in time for the meet and greet time. He would greet everybody, and then he would sit down, and promptly, he'd be sprawled out. Now, to my Pentecostal friends, you're thinking, oh, he's slayed in the spirit. He wasn't. He was snoring. Every Sunday, he snored. I sat up in the balcony every Sunday, because I didn't want to be at church. Not that you guys don't want to be at church, I'm not trying to point you out. I didn't want to be at church. And I could hear him snoring from the balcony every Sunday. He was two rows from the front. Something tells me that man was not enjoying worship the way we see it in the Bible. It wasn't an Adam or Abraham type scenario where God's presence showed up in a mighty way and he put him to sleep. He just came, shook hands, and slept for the entire time. I also remember a moment, uh, actually not just a moment, four years of my life, I was going to Moody Bible Institute and I attended a large church up in Chicago and I loved my church. And it did, it had a great impact on my wife and I. We fell in love with God's word in ways that we never had before. But as I look back at those four years, one of the things that I realized is that I went to church every Sunday. I went to small group every Wednesday. And I can't say that I grew in my reverence for God. I can't say that I grew in just my awestruck wonder of who God was. And I didn't grow my love for God either. And that wasn't the church's fault, it was really my heart's fault. I fell in love with this preacher. He would preach for 45 minutes and I would just be enamored. He, he was six foot four, bald, all bald. All preachers are bald, by the way. All good preachers. Sorry, Brian. Sorry, Brian. Six foot four, he'd walk around the whole place and he'd just have you just gripped the entire time. The worship was phenomenal. And I loved coming to church, but I can't say that I worshiped in those four years. What happens when God shows up? What happens when you see him clearly? What happens when you worship? First thing that happens is your reverence for God grows. 
Reverence is not this fear of offending God. It's a desire not to offend God. We'll see it here in Luke chapter eight. You see Jesus, he was leading this ragtag group of disciples and he says, hey, let's go out on the Sea of Galilee. We're gonna go to the other side. Sea of Galilee was about seven miles by nine miles. It was situated about 680 feet below sea level and was surrounded by mountains, some of which were 10,000 feet. And what would happen is the cold air from the mountains would come down on the warm air to the sea and would create these volatile storms. And Jesus, being God, knew this. So he calls them into a boat. Let's, let's, go, a little, let's go boating. And then he falls asleep. It's exactly what you want every leader to do when storms come, right? Sleep. So he's sleeping. The storm is coming up. In fact, the text tells us it's something like a hurricane. And some of the disciples were experienced fishermen. So when we read that they came to Jesus and they were yelling, master, master, we're perishing, it's not because they were being drama kings or queens. It's not because they were overreacting to a minor situation. In fact, the text tells us that their lives were in danger. They were gonna die. And they came to Jesus, master, master, we're perishing. Now, I don't know what exactly they were looking for because we find out a little bit later in the text that they've kind of forgotten who Jesus is. So I I assume that they're like, hey, Master Jesus, uh, we need another man on the buckets because we're swamping and we're going to sink. But after Jesus calms the storms, Jesus has this really interesting question. He says, where is your faith? Now, this is interesting because for Luke, he's not pointing out a lack of faith. Actually, what he's calling out is a forgetful faith. A faith where you kind of, you get in the midst of a storm and you totally forget who Jesus is. Anybody been there? Anybody there today? You have a storm going on in your life and you've totally lost sight of who Jesus is? Well, the disciples had. Because it was a very common theme in the Old Testament that only God can control the seas. Rather, let me state it a different way. It was a very common theme in the Old Testament that God can control the seas. In Jonah chapter one, I'm gonna read you just parts of it, starting in verse four. We read that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And the captain came and said to Jonah, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us, will give thought to us that we may not perish. It was ingrained in the Old Testament saints that the only way you're going to be saved from a terrible storm is if God saves you. Psalm 89 verse 8 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When, it waves, when its waves rise, you still them. the disciples had forgotten that they had God in the boat with them. And after he calms the seas, Jesus asked them, where is your faith? He's calling them to remember who Jesus is. He's calling them to remember, hey, listen, you have God in the boat. Now, what is he saying? What does he want them to remember? He wants them to remember that Jesus is powerful. He's powerful. He's able to control the storms in our lives. He's also wanting them to remember that he's good, that he's willing to care for them. 
Not only is he able, but he's willing to take care of them in the midst of the storm. And the disciples, upon that question, are reminded, oh yeah, we're in the midst of God. And what does the scripture says? It says they were afraid. Now here's a, here's a kind of comparison here. They're terrified of the storm that is gonna kill them, but they're afraid of Jesus and they're two different ideas. You see, they're not terrified that Jesus is gonna smite them. They have this sudden desire not to offend the king when they're in his presence. They experience reverence for Jesus. They're afraid. There's a second thing that happens. Oh, let me say this real quick. One of my favorite quotes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when Susan is, about, is learning about Aslan uh, from Mr. Beaver. Here's what it says. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. And as a side note, because he's a lion, right? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And when we see Jesus in our midst, we see that he's not safe. He's, he's Lord over all. He's got incredible power to do anything that he pleases. But he's good. He's a good king. And as we stand there in reverence of our king, realizing who Jesus is, as we, as we worship him here this morning, we also begin to marvel. It's the second word that the author Luke uses here. He says they were afraid and they marveled at Jesus. When we are in God's presence, we feel reverence, this desire not to offend our king. And we marvel at his glory and his power and his goodness. This year I had the opportunity to see two marvelous sites. One was uh, Rocky Mountain National Park as you enter into Estes Park. Anybody been there? You come down out of these mountains and then it's just like this valley where Estes Park is and you see the Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was on, okay, don't copy me here, but I had my family on FaceTime because I wanted them to see it. And so I'm driving down this mountain road and then the mountains pop up and it just, <gasps> marvelous, right? The second thing I got to see was the Pacific Ocean for the first time in San Diego. My friend and I were uh, in San Diego for a, a church planning conference and we decided, <laughs> wisely or not, I don't know, we decided we were gonna take a scooter, an electric scooter from San Diego to the Pacific Ocean, it was about six miles. We didn't know that you had to go up this like, I don't know if it was a mountain or a hill, but can you imagine a 230 pound man being carried by an electric scooter up this large hill? It wasn't pretty. Cars were going by us super fast and I didn't know if we were gonna make it. I didn't know if the electric scooter was gonna make it. But alas, it did. And we came up over the hill, Pacific Ocean. And I had to pull the scooter over and just marvel at the beauty. It was breathtaking. When we get in the presence of God, we marvel. He's beautiful. He's huge. It's, it's a sight that is all-consuming. We don't sit and think about ourselves in that moment. We're consumed by the beauty and the glory of the Lord. We're not thinking about, wow, this preacher is not nearly as good as David. We're thinking about the beauty 
of Jesus. That was a veiled attempt to get, to make you happy, I guess. I think my son Judah kind of put it the best. We were talking one time, I wasn't too happy with my sermon, wasn't too excited about preaching. And he came into my room and he, now Judah's nine years old and he said, Daddy, when I'm really nervous about something, what I try to do is focus on something beautiful. And then I go do it. Guys, that's amazing. When we're nervous, when we're in the midst of a storm, we focus our eyes on our Savior who is beautiful and we marvel. And it gives us strength and it gives us hope. It changes our actions and our desires. We don't want to offend our King. We stand there in wonder and astonishment going, wow, God is so good. So those are the first two things we experience when we're in worship. We experience this reverence, this strong desire not to offend our king. And we stand there in awestruck wonder at the beauty and the glory and the majesty of our king. The, the king who created absolutely everything and who rules time and space is in our midst. And it's amazing. There's something else that happens. We find ourselves falling in love with that same king. Now, how does that work? Well, we're going to look at Luke chapter 8 and kind of get some ideas. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read it in the NIV. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now here's a beautiful thing about our Savior. When Jesus does this, when he turns every eye at this party on this woman, he's not trying to shame her, he actually is elevating her. Nobody at that party wanted to acknowledge her. Everybody wanted to ignore her. Everybody were ashamed that she was in their presence. But Jesus turns everybody's attention to this woman and increases in their eyes her value to them. Look at this woman. He's not calling her out to shame. He's actually elevating her status by acknowledging that she's there. I think it's beautiful. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but she, this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. 
Let me summarize the story as this. Jesus, the great teacher, is invited by a religious leader who thinks he has it all put together to a party. And this woman, who has lived a sinful life, this, what most scholars believe is a prostitute, comes because she, wants, she has one thing in mind, she wants to worship Jesus. And so she braves the shame that she's gonna endure. She braves the evil looks that everybody's gonna give her. She, she braves the fact that they're gonna ignore her and try to cast her out. And she goes there because she wants to focus on Jesus and honor him by pouring this perfume on his head. By the way, you never poured perfume on feet. You always poured it on their head. It was a sign of showing them honor. Now what happens? This woman who's lived a sinful life, who's fully aware of all of her wrongdoings, sees Jesus and she becomes undone. She sees his glory and his majesty. She doesn't want to offend him anymore, but she knows that her past life has totally offended him. And as she walks up to him, she falls on her knees and she begins to weep. Now, she's making a scene and she's probably even more embarrassed, so she lets down her hair, which was not the right thing to do custom-wise in those times, and she starts to wipe her tears off of his feet, trying to hide the scene that she's making. Well, I don't know, have you ever tried to dry anything up with hair? Not all that effective, right? So finally, she just pours out this perfume on his feet to anoint him. She's completely undone because she sees the majesty of Jesus and her own sinfulness. And she understands something this Pharisee, this religious leader, has no idea about, and that is forgiveness. And that's how we fall in love with Jesus. We see this incredible chasm that stands between us and God. And we come to the recognition that there's absolutely no way we can be in the presence of God apart from forgiveness. We see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and we realize that his holiness and his righteousness calls him to reject us. But because of the fact that our sins were placed on him on the cross and God's wrath was put on Jesus on our behalf, we've now been accepted into the presence of the king. We now get to feast as priests in his presence. And that forgiveness leads us to love. Have you experienced that? Now, some of you think I'm asking, like, have you experienced that one time? Well, I am asking that. Like, have you come to know your Savior, Jesus Christ? But I'm also asking, do you experience that on a weekly basis? Maybe you do. Maybe you're like me. Sometimes you come in, you have a whole bunch of other stuff on your mind. You get seated next to somebody you don't really like. I'm sorry if it's your spouse. And you find yourself in the seat of the Pharisee. Anybody been there before? You're looking at the person next to you and you're like, "Ah, I think Jesus probably does really know their heart. I'm pretty sure he doesn't love them. You been there? Come on, let's be honest. We're in in the family, but we can be honest with each other. My wife every Sunday is like, ah, I'm pretty sure God does not love my husband. That's not true, is it, right? Or maybe you're like the Pharisee and you, and you look at someone around you and you're like, I don't think this person should be forgiven. And if they're accepted at Spanish River Church, maybe this isn't the place for me because I don't want to be with these people. I don't want to be with people like that. 
Have you ever been there before? I want more of an elite club, a place where the standards are higher in order to be accepted. I've seen it before. Not here, not here, but in other churches. But God's grace is so amazing. And his accomplished work for us on the cross is so incredible that the greatest of sinners are accepted and forgiven. And we love as a result. If you find yourself more like a Pharisee, more in the sense that you kind of judge the people around you, can I call you the way Jesus calls you to repent? That's really what the woman is doing here. When she's laying out on the floor, wiping Jesus' feet with her tears in her hair, and then the perfume, she's repenting of her past life. She loves him because she's been forgiven so much. And the first step to walk away from being a Pharisee is this understanding of our sinfulness and God's incredible grace. We repent from that. This sort of self-righteous performing or pretending. Performing is somehow believing that we can live up to God's standards and pretending is believing that I don't really need God's grace. But Jesus calls us to focus on him and turn away from that. If you're here and you've never really experienced worship before, can I call you to repent? Can I call you to believe? To remember who Jesus really is? This all-powerful, mighty God who condescends and dies for you? This almighty, powerful God who controls space and time and can take care of you in the midst of your storm? Can we focus our eyes on him and not on ourselves? If you're here and it's been a long time since you've worshiped, can I call you to love again? Again, to reconsider your sinfulness and God's righteousness and to see the forgiveness that he's extended to you in Christ? I pray that our hearts would just, just be reverent before the Lord. Not this trembling fear, but this strong desire not to offend him, overwhelmed by the majesty and an awestruck wonder of who he is, that our hearts might love him more. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us. Lord, we thank you so much that you love us in spite of us. Father, I think of the text message Brian sent me yesterday. How are you doing, brother? And my response was, I know there's one person that'll be there tonight and tomorrow that who needs this message. Lord, that's me. Lord, may we, may we see you in your full glory. May we experience reverence. May we marvel at your power, your beauty, and your goodness. And Lord, may we see our sin and your righteousness see, and see just how much we've been forgiven and fall in love all over again. Jesus, you're awesome. Would you encourage and strengthen your saints today? And Lord, for those of us who aren't saints, who aren't called yet, Lord, would you call us to your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray, amen.